Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. Uh, Barb, thank you for those kind words. I, it, was, it was probably about oh, somewhere maybe about eight or ten years ago, Pastor Doug asked me to go with him to do some visit, visitation. And we went out to Ramona Eisen's house out there in Lake of the Woods. And I remember, I think it was, it was Pastor Doug, myself, and George Giddens, and uh, uh, Larry, and Barb Plating when we went out there. And I just saw how much she enjoyed people visiting her and taking her communion. And then after we did that, Pastor Doug wanted to go over to the hospital. We went over and we saw, we saw Jimmy Horn. And, you know, Jimmy was feeling great. He was giving his testimony about things that had happened to him. And the, the thing that I saw through Pastor Doug's ministry was what it is to really minister to people that are in affliction and suffering. And, and uh, it was an encouragement to me. And, and I, I saw that in my own life, that when I got to a point where I wasn't, you know, going to the job every day, that I could actually, you know, get um, uh, ordained and become a minister and be able to do that. And I look back now and I'm thinking, that was a lot of work for three years of being a teaching elder. But, but uh, I was just so blessed by the things that we, we got to do. And the other thing that, that struck me as being a, that kind of a person ministering to people that are sick is that you get to experience their last communion with them. And, and I, can't, I can't think of anything more precious than to have you know, the last communion with someone. I remember having it with Nancy Mangus. I remember having it with Beth Lee. I remember having it with Bob McMichael. Uh, and I remember having it with Ramona Eisen. And, I, and just being able to have the opportunity to do those kind of things has just encouraged me of how real God is and how he ministers to people in their affliction. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity that uh, Pastor Sean gave me to be uh, a minister in the PCA, even though it was only for uh, three years. So I'm thankful to him and for Pastor Doug encouraging me to, to take that on. I mean, was, it, was it hard? Was it stressful? Was it painful? Yes, but all those things that are worth doing are that way. And I encourage you, you know, if you're thinking, how can I serve in the church? You know, that might be one way that you can serve is by ministering to people that are, that are suffering. Um, you know, providentially, God has worked this out, that Darlene and I can move down to North Carolina. The, the one thing that I saw when I've been ministering to people is how important it is to have your family close by. And if you don't have your family close by, how much more stress that puts on your family when you're not there. And not everybody can do that. I understand that. But it just providentially worked out that it was, it was really good for Darlene and I to be able to, to do that. Um, and one of the things that's happening is, is that the house that we're, we're buying is about half the size that we have right now. And so we've had to, to downsize. And when I say downsize, I mean really downsize. And I mentioned this um, last uh, month when I was preaching that night, but we, there's, there's a systematic theology to downsizing, and I figured out what it is. And there's, there's five things. The first thing that you do is all the stuff that you hold dear that you can't hold on to anymore, you give to your loved ones or you give to your friends. So that's the number one thing you do. Number two, uh, you put it on Facebook Marketplace and next door. That's the second thing you do. The third thing you do is you lower the price. 
The, the fourth thing that you do is, is that you, um, uh, you put it in a yard sale and you try to sell it. And then if that doesn't work, the next step is to take it and put it on the curb and put free. And if that doesn't work, then what you do is um, you take it to the dump. And so the, the, the verse in Hebrews where it says, uh, you rejoice at the plundering of your goods, has a real meaning to Darlene and I as we get ready to, to downsize. Um, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about suffering today. I had, I, I have taught 17 classes, adult Sunday school classes since I've been here at New Life, and a lot of them have to do with suffering. And I remember a young lady coming up to me and she said, I really like to go to your class, but they all seem so sad. And, and, and when you talk about suffering, it is sad. But if, if you remember, as you'll see as we go through that, there is a joy in suffering. There really is. And I hope that you're able to get that from me when I, when I give us uh, this message this, this morning. When I became a Christian in 1972, it was through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. And I was a sophomore at Arizona State. And I came to faith when someone gave me a booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws and gave me a, a new living uh, or a living new, uh, new Testament to, and told me to read the book of, of John. And even though it's called the four spiritual laws, it's really four principles that founder Bill Bright put together to lead people to Christ. And the first law of principle stated that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is a true statement that God does love us and has a wonderful plan for us. But a wonderful life doesn't mean a painless and trouble-free life, even though that's what it sounds like it means. In college, I remember going to these um, meetings that we had on Friday nights, and usually at these meetings, two people would share their testimony, and their testimony was something like this. I used to laugh and joke and smoke a little dope, but when I became a Christian, God solved all my problems. And I'm sure these people meant well when they said that, but it bothered me at the time because I didn't think it was necessarily true, meaning that if I became a Christian, that God would solve all my problems and that I would have a trouble-free life. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul warns new Christians in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think any of us like to suffer. I know I don't like to suffer. But suffering is an important element in a Christian's life that God uses to make, more, to, make, to make us more like Jesus. And this morning, we're going to explore how God uses suffering in our lives to increase our faith. So please open your Bibles to Philippians 1. I don't have a slide for this, as I want to see it in our own Bibles. And our text this morning is going to be from Philippians 1, verses 12 through 30. And the key verse is going to be verse 29, but I want to read this text so you can get the context. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he's in prison in Rome, awaiting trial, and he's in chains. But as we read this text, I want you to notice his joyful, his joyful tone. Pastor Sean preached about joy two weeks ago, and told us when Scripture tells us that Scripture tells us that we can experience joy and suffering. So I'm reading from Philippians 1, starting at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of my and to, to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in my in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be found at all ashamed. But with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in this flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, but which I, yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is far more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now here's the key verse. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In verse 29, there's two gifts that God gives us. The first one is faith for salvation, and the second one is to suffer for his sake. Please pray with me. Father, as we study to learn how you use suffering in our lives to increase our faith, enlighten our eyes, and apply Christ to our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this morning, I would like to unpack this gift of suffering that God gives us. The big idea I want us to see this morning is this, that God gives us two gifts. He gives us faith so we can believe and to suffer for his sake. I think we all want the first gift so that we will have faith and believe, but I'm not so sure we want the second gift of suffering. As you see in the bulletin, I've got a three-point outline, and the first point is suffering as a normal part of the Christian faith. The Puritan John Bunyan, who spent 12 years in prison, and he also wrote probably the most widely read book in English, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this. Why then should we think of our innocent lives will exempt us from our sufferings or that troubles shall do us such harm? For verily it is for our present and future good that our God doth send them upon us. I count therefore that such things are necessary for the health of our souls as bodily pains and labor are for the health of our body, unquote. We can't read the Bible without seeing the suffering of God's people. From the murdered Abel in Genesis 4 to the martyred souls in Revelation 6, we see it everywhere. And when I say suffering, what does that exactly mean? The Bible uses words like persecution, tribulation, affliction, anguish, misery, pain, and distress to describe it. But I think we all know what it is. We don't need a dictionary to explain it. We either feel it physically in pain or emotionally in anguish. Sometimes the Bible describes as suffering for Christ's sake. In 1 Peter 4.12, 
Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The, ep- the epistle of 1 Peter in particular explains what it is to share Christ's sufferings, which is being persecuted for following Christ. And sometimes the Bible describes suffering more general in nature like in James 1, 2. Consider it, all my, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James, spread, James spreads a, wild net, a wide net, including many kinds of suffering that the Christians undergo in this fallen world. Sickness, loneliness, bereavement, and disappointment. And sometimes suffering has to do with old age and sickness. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary light affli- for this light momentary affliction. And let me say that again. For this light momentary affliction. I'm turning 70 years old in November. I know there's people in here older than me. But I can tell you, your life goes over in a moment almost. When you look back at it, you think, I can't believe I've lived this long. I can't believe I've experienced the things that I have. But it's all momentary light affliction, no no matter how painful it can be sometimes. And then the Apostle Paul writes that all Christians will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy 3.12, he writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. Who's that? That should be all of us in this room. We should all desire to live a godly life. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And lastly, the Lord Jesus suffered and learned obedience when he came down from heaven and lived on earth. Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, I don't have this, I don't have a slide for this, but although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was fully divine and also fully human. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Though though always without sin and thus always obedient, Jesus nevertheless acquired knowledge and experience by living as a human being, and he especially came to know firsthand what it cost to maintain obedience in the midst of suffering. From, From Scripture, we can see that Christians will suffer for various reasons. It's all part of the Christian life. And it's important to realize that all suffering matters to the Christian because suffering for the Christian always has an element of temptation in it. Because when we are afflicted, we may be tempted to choose sin over affliction. Which takes me to my second point, choosing affliction over sin. When we experience affliction, suffering, and grief, it disorients us. If you've ever had something that happened all of a sudden that you weren't expecting, it disorients you. And because of that disorientation in our sinful flesh, and because we are what we're experiencing can hurt so bad, we may choose sin over affliction. What I mean by that is sometimes we choose sin over affliction by you know, medicating ourselves with drugs or alcohol so we don't feel so bad. We may leave a suffering relationship instead of working through it. We might get the news that we have a debilitating illness and may, and may be tempted to end our life instead of trusting God with our illness. There's a lot more examples I could cite, but I think you get the point. Jeremiah Burroughs, who wrote a whole book on the concept of choosing affliction over sin, that book was called The Evil of Evils, wrote, better to be under the greatest affliction than be under the guilt 
or power of any sin. Choosing, of, choosing sin over affliction is reflected in this parable of the sower when Jesus explains about the seed that falls on the rocky ground. In Mark 14, 16 through 17, they are the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the, of the word, immediately they fall away. They initially received the word with joy, but as soon as adversity came upon them, they fell away. Now in the, epistle, in the first epistle of Peter, he addresses this issue and encourages Christians to be on the alert. First Peter 5, 8, and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil grow, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to, to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that, this, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resisting the devil means that the believers remain firm in their faith and trust God. And we need, we need to remember the devil, the devil hates us and has a terrible plan for our life. And that plan is to make us ineffective Christians or try to convince us that we were never a Christian to begin with by getting us to, cho sin, to choose sin over affliction. Now, I don't know how many times I've heard you preach on this verse, but when you preach it, you talk about how Satan is toothless and he roars to scare us. And the reason why he's toothless is because Jesus has yanked his teeth out by his death and resurrection. And because of that, we can resist him and not be fearful, even though he tries to scare us. And he will, he will try to scare you. He will try to scare you that, that all sorts of terrible things are going to happen to you. But we need to remain firm in the Lord. All suffering is ultimately traceable to Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Yet the scriptures also teach that all affliction is sent to Christians by God. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to this, his purpose. That all things of this verse include tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perilous sword. Joel Beakey wrote, The most important thing is not the amount of suffering and affliction we, we receive, but how we respond to that affliction. If you find out that you got a disease that you're not going to be cured of, what is your response to that? That's, that's going to determine how you're going to be faithful to God. We as Christians must remember that though we are redeemed and regenerated, we still live in a word, world cursed because of Adam's sin. Afflictions can be heavy and difficult to bear. And if you're a Christian, your faith can help you understand some of the rich benefits that affliction brings under the hand of the Father. Though bitter to the body and soul, afflictions serve as strong medicine for us in the hands of your great physician. God has a purpose for suffering in our lives, and that suffering helps us to trust God more in ourselves less. Now, we've made it to my third point. Now, my third point, what we're going to do is we're going to look at nine different things to how God uses suffering in our lives. And I love the list, and I love to go number one, number two. So number one. Through affliction, God humbles us deeply, showing us that apart from God's divine grace, we are nothing but sin and corruption. He teaches us the same lesson he taught Israel in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
In the wilderness of our suffering, God reveals our inadequacy and his absolute sufficiency. One of the most humbling aspects of trials is that we often don't understand the specific reasons why they come upon us. Yet it's precisely when we don't comprehend the Father's ways that we can learn submissive trust in his will. When God revealed himself to Job, the Lord did not explain why the trials had come, but instead revealed his incomprehensible majesty, and Job responded by praising God and repented of his questioning his ways. We learn in trials to trust God, to do what is right, and not to follow our finite look on life to challenge God's holiness. Second, through affliction, God exposes our sins. This is my favorite one. In the bright light of sorrow, God, Christians come to see that sin dishonors God, defiles the soul, and damns the unrepentant. When our hearts turn blind eyes to our sin, God, God's hand comes heavily upon us until we recognize and acknowledge the evil that we have done. In Psalm 32, 3-4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away though my, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Through affliction, we learn, as Thomas Watson said, sin unrepented of ends in tragedy. It has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. What is, what is there in sin? Then that men should continue in it. Say not it is sweet. Who would desire the pleasure which kills? We need, a, we need to hate our sin. God's grace sharpens the edge of suffering to pierce the conscience and cause us to repent. It's in hard and fearful times, God brought the sons of Jacob to remember their sins against their brother Joseph. In affliction, the Holy Spirit searches our souls for sins, drags them out of their hiding places in our hearts, and sets them in the light of God's holy and all-searching eye. Number three, through affliction, God purchases our corruption. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, the psalmist confessed, but now I have kept thy word. That's Psalm 119, 67. The Holy Spirit uses affliction as a medicine to destroy the deadly disease of sin so that we may bring forth healthy and godly fruit. What sin, when sin makes us backslide from our Savior, he as a good shepherd sends the rod of affliction to set us straight. John 15, 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. It is good for us to be chastised with affliction as it is for a tree to be pruned that it bears more fruit. God arranges the seasons of sorrow and prosperity in our lives to his wise design to meet our spiritual needs. Number four, through affliction, God draws believers near him. The Lord uses affliction to make us seek him, to bring us back into communion with himself, and to keep us close by his side. The Lord said in Hosea 5.15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. Affliction drove the dying thief that was next to Jesus to a dying savior, and it wasn't the crown on the evil king Manasseh, Manasseh, who was a wicked king. But what drove him, but what drove, uh, th that drove Manasseh was his sin. 
Therefore, the Lord brought upon the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And there the verse continues. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that he was that the Lord was God. Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. The church father, John Chrysostom, said, Affliction is like the shepherd's dog, which takes the lamb into its mouth when it goes astray, not to bite it, but to bring it home. Fifth, number five, through affliction, God conforms believers to Christ. I can't, I can't look at this verse without thinking, hearing Pastor Doug preach this, because he's preached it several times. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He conforms, he conforms us to the image of his son. God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had to suffer in order to perfect his obedience and save his people. If, he would inherit God's king, if we are to inherit God's kingdom as sons, then we must suffer with the son. Through the way of suffering, we become followers of the Lamb of God. All our paths of affliction have already been traveled, overcome, and sanctified by our shepherd whose substitutionary blood is our sure pledge that no affliction is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Number six, through affliction, God expands our joy. Afflictions work for good because the Lord balances them with comfort and joy. David wrote in Psalm 35, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Resurrection follows crucifixion. Christ told his disciples in John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will, leap and, you will weep and lament, but the, Lord will, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The Lord brings his people into the wilderness to speak to them, where godly suffering abounds, Comfort also abounds. They discover, as Thomas Watson said, God's rod hath honey at the end of it. At such moments they can confess, Behold, blessed is the one who reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. Number seven, through affliction, God increases the believer's faith. Affliction works for good by helping us walk by faith and not by sight. James 1.3 said, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness means endurance. In prosperity, we can talk about living by faith, but in adversity, we experience what it means to live and endure by faith. Here we see the great difference between the effect of the affliction on the wicked and its effect on God's children. Thomas Manton, a Puritan, wrote this, the fruit of punishment for the wicked is despair and murmuring, but of trial for the Christian, patience and sweet submission. Number eight, through affliction, God, God weans believers from this world. Christ told his disciples, John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, a dog does not usually bite those who live in this home, but only strangers. Likewise, the world's bite reminds us that we are not home, but strangers and pilgrims on the earth. God's temporal judgment on this world, and this is what I mean by God's temporal judgment. There might be a time in your life where everything is taken away. Everything. Everything temporal in this life is taken away. And this is what happened to Habakkuk. And in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, this is what Habakkuk says in his response that everything in his life was going to be taken away. And this is a, this is a favorite verse in our caregiver support group. Isn't it, Barb? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This enables us to hold the world loosely, but also encourages us to cling to Christ with all our might with both hands. Number nine. Through affliction, God prepares believers for their heavenly inheritance. When we are afflicted, it elevates our souls towards heaven so that we do what Abraham did. We look towards heaven. When, when my late wife died, my, my kids, my kids all looked towards heaven. And that was the example that the mother had, sent, had, had set for them was to always look towards heaven. And that's what Abraham's doing in 1110. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And again, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All right, so how do, how do we apply all this in our lives? I mean, some of you are suffering greatly. You have a serious health condition, and you know unless a miracle happens, you're not going to get any better. Maybe you're the caregiver to that person, and there are different struggles that you're going through to care for your loved one. Maybe you've experienced a, lo a loss in your life and are battling grief, and it doesn't seem like you're getting any better. I could list a lot more of these, but I think we all understand what those things are. But here's the question we need to ask ourselves. Can we trust God with it? Do we believe that our affliction is for our spiritual good? I mean, that's the question you have to ask yourself. Is what I'm going through for my spiritual good? Can we trust God will provide everything necessary or good for us, both in this age and the age to come? Can we trust him for that? And if so, we need to do what the Paul calls us to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. And these just aren't words, but when we give thanks, we are trusting God by faith in the work that he's doing in our lives to conform us to Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father, none of us like to suffer. I'm first of the list. I don't like to suffer. And I know my, my brothers and sisters don't like to suffer. But Lord, this is a gift that you've given us. It's a gift that you've given us so that you will conform us to the Lord Jesus and that our faith through our suffering is going to increase. Father, I pray for my brother Ricardo Perez 
there at UVA right now who's getting the last of his chemo treatments to kill everything inside of him so they can do the stem cell thing. He's suffering deeply. Father, we pray for him and Cynthia. Father, I pray for the Capels, for Fred and Ellen, what they're going through right now with their health. Father, I pray that, that we would get a, um, a vision in our church to pray for those that are afflicted, that we would pray for caregivers, that we would, we would pick out certain people in our church that need our prayers and we would pray for them every day. Father, I thank you for this opportunity you've given me in this short time to serve in this church. I thank you for, for Pastor Doug. I thank you for Pastor Sean, Pastor Bob, Pastor Sam, and how much they've mentored me and, and helped me. And Father, I just pray uh, for this congregation that we would all suffer well. You know, Tim Keller on his death, but the last thing he said was, am I dying well? And I pray, Father, that, that would be our prayer for ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.